Well, I want to invite you to get your Bibles and turn to the book of Exodus. As you know, we are in the middle of Exodus. For those who may be visiting with us uh, this morning, um, just want to just mention to you that um, our practice here is to walk through God's Word um, and take a book at a time and just let it speak. And we just are convinced that the Word of God is relevant. Uh, we just need to unpack it and see how it's relevant. Uh, and quite frankly, um, the section that we're in in Exodus um, it would not be a section that I would knowingly turn to for the things that we're dealing with right now, and yet have been incredibly helpful and pregnant with connections to the New Testament and to the gospel. And this whole section is really, from, has been for me, really helpful in being able to put all these, these thoughts and ideas together um, as it relates to God's, God's heart, God's character, what he desires for his people. And uh, just kind of as a backdrop, let's just remind ourselves that God is speaking to Israel. He's not speaking to the church. And so, that, so sometimes not everything that he's saying is directly something that we need to be fleshing out, but the principles behind it are the same. And that's what we want to land the plane with and make sure that we're connecting with. So with that, let's stand. We're going to read Exodus chapter 23. Verses 1 through 9. Exodus 23, verses 1 through 9. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with the wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. Nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many, so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one, of, of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge, and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Lord, again, we come to your word. And Lord, we are convinced that you want to shape us and mold us and point us to your son, Jesus Christ, from this text. And Lord, I ask that what we know not, Lord, you would teach us. What we have not, Lord, you would give us. And what we are not, Lord, that you would make us. And allow me as your messenger to be faithful, to open up your word and to, to seek to, to, to show it and reveal it so your people can grow and be changed. And Lord, pursue what it means to be like Christ. Lord, we need your help. We need illumination. We need wisdom. We need understanding. And this morning, we are relying on you through the ministry of your word to give us that. We ask for your help now in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, there are many 
comic book superheroes that have become ingrained into the fabric of American culture. Of course, there's Batman. And Batman, of course, always has a bat gadget for every strange situation that he and Robin might be in, that he's able to use it and to get them out of that predicament. Then, of course, there's Spider-Man who can climb tall buildings and swing from skyscrapers with his rope-like webbing that he shoots from his wrists. Then there's Captain America who brings a powerful punch but does most of his damage with his trusty shield. Finally, there's Superman. Just like the beginning of his program says, and this might take you back a number of years, the announcer says, faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. And then you hear voices, look, up in the sky, it's a bird, it's a plane. It's Superman. And then the announcement, announcer says, yes, it's Superman. Strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Superman, who can change the course of mighty rivers, bend steel in his bare hands, and who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, fights a never-ending battle for truth, Justice and the American way. And all of you are just like, man, you just brought me back to my childhood. And then, when the superheroes join up together to protect humanity, they're called the Justice League. My friends, as an American society, I think we have embraced this motto from Superman stories. We like to think that we are a people who embrace truth, justice, and the American way. And we might agree that those ideals are still part of the essential fabric of our society, but it is a fabric that is torn in many places, isn't it? Not all of our society has experienced truth, justice, and the American way in the ways that we would want them to or we would hope that they would experience it. In fact, you can make a case that our society has been riddled with lies, injustice, and a sinful way. Yet Lady Justice remains, doesn't she? Blindfolded, holding scales in one hand and a sword in the other, standing on the book of the law and under one foot, keeping the snake of evil suppressed, all the while making sure that there continues to be fair and equal administration of the law without corruption, favor, greed, or prejudice. Now, it's an ideal world, isn't it? And there's a problem. And the problem is that men are sinful. And when Lady Justice is corrupted, many innocent people suffer. Now, as we come to our text this morning, what we find is something far greater than truth, justice, and the American way. We can put it this way. It's truth, justice, and the divine way. 
It's what God is breathing out for his people in this newly formed nation of Israel. And of course, it has implications for us as his church. So this is, this is God, the eternal God, who is the God of justice, calling his people to live justly. Regardless of how the ever-changing world thinks and behaves around us, hear this, friends, God's people must be committed to truth, to justice, and the divine way. We want God's will to be accomplished. We want his truth to go forward. We want his justice to be exercised on this earth. And the pursuit of true and impartial justice demands that we embrace honesty, kindness, and righteousness in our dealings with one another, and especially in the courts. And what we have in our text here is courtroom language. In verses 1 through 3, the focus is primarily on witnesses in the context of a courtroom. In verses uh, 4 and 5, the focus is on our attitude toward those who are our enemies or our opponents in the context of a courtroom. And in verses 6 through 8, the focus is on the responsibility of the judges who are exercising oversight in the courtroom. So if you're looking for a standard or a guide for true justice, let me say this, I'll be very, very careful. It's not the Constitution of the United States of America. It's the very Word of God itself. It's the law that's breathed out by God. And by that, I'm not trying to diminish anything that man has created, except to say that God's Word is far superior to that. So you don't need to look any further. It's contained in our text today. So let's begin here with the need for honest witnesses. Notice that God is giving us specific instruction for personal and practical obedience of the ninth commandment, which says, you shall not bear false witness. So our personal commitment to holiness is to show itself in our public fairness and truthfulness in the context of our interactions with others, in particular when we have disputes. Now, friends, I just want you to think with me as I give you some examples here. Why would a man like Joseph Burroughs be convicted in 1989 for the murder and robbery of an 88-year-old farmer in Illinois only to be exonerated in 1994? Or why would a man like William Gent be convicted of a crime of rape and murder in 1980 only to be exonerated in 1988? Or why would Dale Johnson be convicted of murder of his stepdaughter and boyfriend in 1984, only to be exonerated in 1990. In each of those cases, the person was convicted by corrupt eyewitness testimony. Now, could you imagine being put in jail on the basis of eyewitness testimony when you knew you were innocent and wondering, what is going on here? I mean, you want to talk about feeling bad. That's not a feeling I want for anyone here. But friends, in a sinful society, this is what happens. 
In the case of Joseph Burroughs, the two witnesses ultimately recanted their testimony, acknowledging that Mr. Burroughs had nothing to do with the crime. And it took a special investigation by Peter Rooney of the the Champaign-Urbana News Gazette to uncover the truth and to reveal the false testimony. In the case of Dale Johnson, the witness's identification came while under hypnosis. And his attorneys years later discovered that four independent witnesses had seen the victims in a different place, which would have given Mr. Johnson a solid alibi. And this was all known by the authorities prior to the trial, but had not been disclosed to the defense. Now friends, that's corruption. That is bearing a false witness. In the case of William Gent, once again, evidence came to the surface that contradicted the eyewitness testimony. And the list goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on. This is a topic, this is an issue that is dear to the heart of God. That's why it's one of the Ten Commandments, and that's why it's fleshed out for us here in this case law. Now, I'm not making the case that our whole judicial system is corrupt or even that it's racist, but but that mankind, because he is sinful, is willing at times, and for different reasons, to fabricate the truth and offer up false testimony against other people. Now, in our text, in this section here, verses 1 through 3, we read five specific exhortations or prohibitions about the presence of, of false testimony in court. And I'm categorizing now under three headings because those three headings really just encapsulate what's going on here. Perjury, popularity, and then partiality. Let's look at the first one, perjury. Now, perjury is when a witness lies or bears a false report under oath. And as we've seen in this ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And so as a witness, you and I must be committed to the truth to the whole truth, and what? Nothing but the truth. And there's a reason why that's something that's part of the fabric of our society. Because we need, in order for a society to work well and to function well, we need eyewitness testimony, but we also need the conviction that that testimony is true, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Now, for some reason, however, we may be tempted to view this newly formed nation of Israel with a type of utopian nostalgia, as if they are the perfect example of that perfect society under God. But friends, that view is quickly dashed into pieces when you think about and you remember that the Israelites grumbling in the wilderness, remember that? Complaining about what they had. And ultimately even accusing God of how he was dealing with them. And then if we look after this story, after this case law is given and Israel comes or goes away from the mountain, they're waiting for Moses to come, what do they do? They end up building an idol and worshiping it. How quickly Israel reveals its sinfulness. Now friends, I say all that to say simply this. That when God gives his law, He's giving his law because he knows our nature. He knows what we are like. 
See, Israel, like us, is sinful and needs God's counsel. He need, they need God's help. They need God's warning in order to be able to glorify him, live for him, and interact in such a way that would be truth and justice and following God's will. So we're, we're given here two warnings under this idea of perjury. First one there, you shall not spread a false report. He will not give false testimony. So don't allow the spreading of rumors to influence your testimony. You're going to give some testimony, and you hear all this different kind of stuff. That's why when you go and you, you, you go as a juror, a potential juror, they ask you questions whether you know anything about this case or not. Why? Because they don't want you to be tainted in your understanding of the facts based on the rumors that you have heard. And so, friends, when you spread a rumor, it's as if... It is the truth. If you're spreading a rumor as if it is the truth, you raise that rumor to the level of evidence against that person. You know, as they say, you say something enough, you repeat it over and over and over again, people actually believe that it's true. And that's how these rumors spread. Today, it would be more like, hey, did you read and watch that Twitter feed that showed the facts about the attack on that man? And as you read and you watch, and people are saying things like, it's so clear in this video that this person committed this crime. It's obvious what is happening in this video. This person's guilty of murder. How could you think otherwise? And then you wait a few days, and you find out there's more to the story than the video that you watched on Twitter, but already the crowds and society, and the rumors, and the ideas of spread. The truth is, you really don't know all of the facts. What you have is a modern-day rumor spread by Twitter or Facebook that is fueled with the perceived video evidence. Now, friends, we would do well to be careful to not jump on the bandwagon before the facts are actually considered and reported. Now, I realize there are some people that would say, well, the facts are always reported improperly, right? And so you've got this tension. But friends, this is the case. We, we can't allow our testimony to be the result of rumor. That's not eyewitness testimony. Secondly, under this heading, he will not conspire to commit perjury. You shall not join hands with the wicked man to be a malicious witness. Don't form connections. Don't join hands with a wicked man to give false testimony. Now, this could be taken two different ways. Either that the wicked man is the person who is on trial, or that the wicked man is the person who's not on trial, but they're trying to influence the actual outcome here. So if the wicked man is on trial, uh, and, and, and he, he, he knows he's guilty, He's, he's wanting you to conspire with him to give false testimony so that he would be set free. If the wicked man is not the person on trial, but his friend or is on trial, or someone he's associated with is on trial, they're influencing you to give false testimony so that that person can be free. You get that. And this is what's called conspiracy to commit perjury. In other words, we're joining together with a plan, with a story, with an alibi that is false. 
And so what's happening here is God saying, I am not going to put up with that. That is not truth. That is not justice. That is not my way. You shall not bear false testimony. Secondly, not just the problem of perjury, but the problem of popularity. Look at verse 2. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. You can jump down to ver- uh, continue reading in verse 2. Nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many, so as to pervert justice. So there's this, this picture of the many. Now, the many could be the majority, at least the perceived majority, or it could be those who have some kind of anchored influence. So it could be a small group of people, but they are popular in the thinking of the culture of that day, and they're influencing you. So the idea is of following uh, either the majority or this, this smaller group that has this influence to do evil. And so allowing yourself to be influenced by the court of public opinion that has already reached a verdict with the perceived facts that they have. Our our country, friends, this happens all the time. This is what happens in the media. The person has already gone to trial in that environment, and yet they don't have all the information. Or that mob mentality wants a certain outcome, and so they're striving for it, and they're speaking about it, and they want you to conform to what they want to see gets done. And friends, seeking to get justice through mob rule is not God's way. Now we see that in Scripture as the crowd which had been shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, just a little bit later, is turning on Jesus, certainly stirred up by the religious leaders, and they begin to shout, crucify him, crucify him. That's, that's mob rule. It was true back then, and it's true today. If we're honest with these observations, we have seen this attempt at mob rule with the mostly peaceful protests associated with Black Lives Matter marches and the storming of the Capitol by disgruntled Trump supporters. And you could just go on and on picking out some of these examples. It's a mob rule mentality. It's, it's, it's an adage that says, we're going to get this done. We don't care about the law. We're going to get this done. You're saying, look, you don't Don't go down that path. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. He will not give in to the crowd. Again, we're talking about the many here. Nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. So there's, there's a deliberate goal here to pervert justice. So this is talking about giving testimony which distorts the evidence because you are swayed by the majority position. And and friends, this can happen so much, especially in a a political context. This can happen more of in a regional sense that you have certain end goals, and so you're going to somehow twist the facts. Being influenced by this this mob mentality to, to give a testimony that is not accurate, that's not true. It's interesting that in uh, later rabbinical courts, the youngest judge was asked to express his position first in order to not be influenced by the majority. Some wisdom there, isn't there? 
See, testimony is what you saw, it's what you heard. It's about your facts. It's not about the crowd's ideology. And friends, we're living in a world that is always hard at work, trying to squeeze us into its mold of public opinion, and it thinks nothing of somehow influencing you to taint your eyewitness testimony in order to promote or support the wishes of the mob. And God is saying, I want nothing to do, and I want my people to have nothing to do with this kind of mob rule. So the problem of perjury, the problem of popularity, Third, the problem of partiality. He will not show partiality to the poor, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Now you read that and you're like, whoa, whoa, wait a second here. Partial to a poor man? That seems kind of the opposite of what I should be reading here, right? It should say, don't show partiality to the rich, right, in our thinking. But he's saying, no, 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 don't show partiality to the poor because there are times, friends, and we've been experiencing them where simply being rich or relatively rich is an offense to society in general. And to that end, a judge might be partial to the poor when they are, in fact, in the wrong, simply because of an ideology. So prejudice, friends, in favor of the poor happens when people operate a preconceived agenda to do away with all social inequalities. Or when there is popular sentiment to punish the wealthy for their very success. But friends, whatever the motivation, discrimination in favor of the poor is no less evil than discrimination against the poor. Or to put it differently, It is as wrong to favor the rich as it is to prefer the poor. Simply because you have a preference, an ideology. What God is concerned about is truth and justice. Whether the person's rich, whether the person's poor. Now certainly God is not saying don't take things into consideration with a person who's rich who might have more influence and have power where you have a poor person who has limited abilities. No, he's going to get to that in a little bit. But if the person's guilty, they're guilty. Deal with truth. Deal with justice. So the poor are not always right, nor are the rich always in the wrong. In the book of Leviticus, we read this, Leviticus 9.15. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. See that? Righteousness. Doesn't matter if they're poor, doesn't matter if they're rich. God is looking for impartiality. And this is the divine balance that is needed for truth and justice, isn't it? So we now move from the responsibility we have to be honest and faithful witnesses to the need for us to show kindness to our enemies. Kindness for our interaction with our enemies or our opponents. There's a neat show on Netflix that my wife and I have watched. It, it's, it's, it's been a little bit, but it's called The Kindness Diaries. I don't know if you've ever seen it before. It's a reality documentary of an Englishman by the name of Leon who begins his journey with his VW convertible bug um, in Alaska and looks 
to travel to Argentina. And he can only continue on his way through the kindness of the people that he meets. He cannot accept any money. He can only be the recipient of kindness. And so he interacts with all sorts of different people. If someone wants to give, uh, put, put gas in his vehicle, they have to go to the gas station, they have to pay for it, and they have to, you know, he, he might pump it, but they're the ones that are paying for it. If he needs a place to sleep, he has to ask random people, hey, would you mind if I came over and spent the night at your house? And people are kind. And he travels from Alaska all the way down to Argentina, and there's a whole story along the way. Kindness, friends, can go a long way between people. A reporter was interviewing an old man on his 100th birthday, and the reporter asked, so what are you most proud of? And the man said, well, I don't have an enemy in the world. And the reporter thought to himself and said, What a beautiful thought. How inspirational. And the man says, yep, outlived every last one of them. (laughs) Now, as we look at our text, we're now given two illustrations that will yield three acts of kindness to show us our need to treat our enemies with the same kindness. And in light of the context, it it would appear here that the emphasis here is that the enemy is the person with whom you are having a disagreement which has resulted in you being in court. So maybe, for example, you're having a dispute with your neighbor about your property line because you want to put up a fence. And he's trying to infringe on your property and has claimed the territory that you know is yours, but he is adamant that you have stolen it from him and has brought the case um, against you into court. And his very case is threatening to take away the fruit of your labor. And he's angry that you won't just bow down to his demands. So he's your legal counterpart. He's your adversary. And it is to this adversarial relationship that this illustration is directed at. He's your enemy in the sense that he's your opponent, right? And the following happens, so let's read it. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. So, there's really two illustrations here, right? Your enemy's donkey has wandered off, you find it. Or your enemy's donkey or ox is lying down under a burden, and your enemy is there with it, trying to figure out what to do. So what are you supposed to do? What, what, what are you called to do? This is what God is saying. And there's three words that really kind of summarize that, that are there and helpful for us. First of all, in verse 4, you are to bring it back to him. You are to return his donkey, his ox to him. Now, you, you just got to think about what is, what is your flesh saying at this moment? Yeah, your, your flesh is saying, you know what, either, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoo it further away, right? Um, I'm, I'm going to take it back and maybe no one will notice. So your flesh is thinking other things, but God is saying, no, 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 no. That's not how you respond. 
that's not what truth and justice in a divine way looks like. And then in the next illustration, so here you have this, this donkey who's burdened down and, and, and your, your enemy is with it. What are you supposed to do? It says, refrain from leaving him with it. In other words, you are to remain with him. You see him burdened down. You stay with him. And, and the next thing is, you shall rescue with him. So you're now working together to help this, this animal with this burden to be restored and, and, and even to even get home. And again, if our flesh is screaming at us here, it's screaming, just ignore him and walk on by. Right? You're thinking to yourself, you're just getting your just desserts. Or... You're laughing at him because of his misfortune. But friends, the point is that even though he is your adversary in court, he is still your neighbor in life. So if you see your enemy stuck on the side of the road with a flat, a flat tire after a day in court, don't drive by honking your horn, laughing at his misfortune. Which, by the way, would be a really good YouTube Post in our society. No, you stop your car and you go help him in his time of need. You stay with him until the problem is fixed and you drive with him to wherever his destination is to make sure that he is okay. You're not doing this because you're looking to change his mind about the courtroom situation. You're simply trying to be a good neighbor to him. And you do this because God has called you to be kind, to love your neighbor and to love your, what? Enemy. So we cannot have one set of moral standards, friends, for our friends and another for our enemies. But our flesh wants to kick in and to change the rules. If that is true, then truth has become pliable and our morality is meaningless. Friends, God calls us to attitudes that reflect his character. We were once enemies opposed to God, yet God in his kindness granted us mercy and grace. Just listen to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. You know it very well, but, but read it with me in light of what we're looking at here. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all, uh, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In other words, we were enemies of God, only wanting to satisfy our own sinful desires. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Get this. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We're simply called to reflect the character of God. Even with, and especially with, 
our enemies. So friends, this kindness is not natural for us. It's an attitude that the Apostle Paul reminds us that we must put on. In other words, we must force ourselves to fight against our flesh and to fight to put on the character or the righteousness of Christ. That is what Paul is calling us to later in the book of Ephesians when he challenges us not to grieve the Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse 21 of chapter 4, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. And I think in the tone of what's happening there, these are things that you don't think about. They just come right out of your flesh. But notice what it says in verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Verse, Verse 32 takes work. It takes discipline. It takes the putting on of Christ-likeness. It's not natural. It is spiritual. Now, he has been kind to us through the immeasurable riches of his grace, and like him, we put it on. We work at putting it on. So we've seen, we've seen here that true justice looks like, what it looks like for the witness and for the attitudes and actions toward the enemy, our opponent. But, but now we want to consider true justice in the context of righteous judges. See, corruption in the courts is not just an issue for the witnesses. It's actually an issue, sometimes even a worse issue for judges. One of the worst things that can happen to a society is for that society to be plagued with corrupt judges. And so God speaks to the heart of the issue here, and he brings up, I think, three things. Verse 6, you shall not pervert the justice due your poor in his lawsuit. In other words, don't mistreat the poor. So remember before, he was like, hey, look, don't just side with the poor just because they're poor. But now he's saying, look, you need to make sure as a judge that you're allowing a poor person, a person who doesn't have money, who doesn't have much influence, to actually bring his case to court, and actually that you will take it seriously, and you'll listen to it. You're not looking down on the poor. So the picture here is of this poor person who's bringing their case, but the judge is just like ignoring it. He's not giving it the seriousness that it needs. He dismisses the evidence. But friends, the very people that should be standing with the poor to have their cases heard and to be given a fair hearing are the judges. They are to be champions for the truth, champions for true justice, especially for the vulnerable among us because they know how those who have and are sinful can manipulate and get away with. So he's saying, look, don't mistreat the poor. Secondly, don't allow a false charge. Look at verse 7. This is very serious. Keep far from a false charge. And the implication here is this judge knows this is a false charge. This is false testimony. This is false accusation. And do not kill the innocent and righteous. In other words, don't allow the innocent and the righteous to be found guilty so that they suffer capital punishment. And you're the judge who's going to be giving that sentence. 
for I will not acquit the wicked. Who's the wicked here? It's not the people out there. It's the judge. You as a judge, if you know that there is a false charge, there is false testimony, and you go along with it and you find someone who's innocent or who's righteous, guilty of a crime that they didn't commit, God says, you're not going to get away with it. True justice will catch up with you. So this is a warning. It's a warning for judges to be about the truth and to be about justice. Third, don't take a bribe. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. So bribes undermine the impartiality of judgments. A bribe cripples the, the normal, proper way of doing things and replaces it with a perverted way so that the judge is blinded. They're not really blinded. They know, but he's not looking at, he's not considering the evidence that is before him. In other words, everyone else can see it, right? It's clear, but the judge has been blinded. Why? Because he's taken a bribe. And he's perverting, or the word is there, subverts, but the idea is he's perverting, he's twisting the evidence against those who are truly in the right. Now, friends, it should come as no surprise that the taking of bribes is rebuked throughout the old, both the Old and New Testaments. In Proverbs, uh, we read this, this is Proverbs 17, 23, the wicked accepts a bribe in secret to pervert the way of justice. This is what wickedness does. You've got to think through this. You're willing to take money to put an innocent per- person in jail or to have them be put to death. I mean, just, just think of the depth of depravity in that decision. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Verses 1 through 3, here we have the story of of, of Samuel whose sons become judges, but they are not good judges in Israel. And what's interesting is that their activity leaves the nation in a place where they are looking for something they shouldn't be looking for. Let's just read there, verses 1 through 3. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. That's their motive, right? They took bribes and perverted justice. You know what happens right after this? The leaders of Israel come to Samuel and say, We want a king to rule over us just like the nations. They were so discouraged with the situation that was going on in their country with Samuel's sons that in despair, they thought that actually having a king would be the answer to their problems. The problem was what? They already had a king. God was their king. You see, this is what happens as man tries to figure out a way to solve the problems. The problem isn't a king. The problem is injustice. 
The problem is what's happening there with the bribes and the perversion of that justice. And probably the most famous bribe is the one taken by Judas Iscariot to betray Christ, right? Mark 14, verses 10 and 11 say this, Then Judas Iscariot was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to, to them, and when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. We know how the story there ends. Friends, God is against a bribe. Now, someone might come along and say something like, well, Pastor Rod, you do know. You do know that bribery was a cultural norm in some societies, as it is today in many places. Isn't this just cultural? Now, probably you have been out of our country, and you've been to places where bribes are just kind of part of the fabric of, of life. I certainly get that. But Moses will have none of this, it's just the culture talk. He's saying, whatever your culture, God does not tolerate judges who take bribes. Whatever your culture, truth and justice and God's way does not take bribes. It should not be a part of the fabric of Israel. It should not be the part of the fabric of any healthy society. And friends, it shouldn't even be something that takes place in the context of church. You know, there are some people that want to influence the leadership of the church, and they say, well, you know, if you don't do this, I'm going to stop giving to the church. And a good leadership will say, well, maybe we'll discipline you before you do that. See, people, people just think these are things that they have the freedom to do. It is something that God abhors. That's why he's saying this stuff. Because it violates the, second, or the, the ninth commandment. Now, the motivation, this is the fourth thing, that God gives behind all of this is found in verse 9. This is the motivation for true justice. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So we've dealt with honest witnesses. We've dealt with litigants who are trying to, to, to work together with kindness. We're, we've, we've dealt with judges who are supposed to carry out their judgments with truth and integrity. But Moses now reminds Israel that they are to make sure that they're faithful to the ninth commandment. And, and the motivation is out of their own experience. This is a repetition of what we saw in chapter 22, verse 21. It's not that somehow you know, God is, is saying, oh, I've got to remind them of this. But he's saying, look, this is, this is what you know to be true. You understand why this is important. Why do you understand that this is important? Because you were sojourners, you were slaves in Egypt, and you know what it means to be the recipients of injustice. So let that reality, let that experience motivate you toward truth and justice. Now maybe we don't quite comprehend what it was like for Israel and Egypt. We might talk about you know, the actual exodus part, but the, the bondage that they were in, the suffering that they were experiencing, the mothers whose children were taken away from them, either killed or thrown into the Nile. 
simply because they were young boys. The taskmasters on them, the way they, they, would, they would force the, the, the hard labor so they could build these buildings, don't think it was a wonderful time. Even Israel got to the point, it's like, oh man, we miss all the, the onions and all the stuff back there, forgetting the, the reality of their suffering. And Moses here, and God speaking through Moses saying, look, let me remind you, you know what injustice is. And let what you know then fuel you to say, we must have honest witnesses. We must be kind to our opponents. We must have judges who are willing to stand for truth, for justice. They must be righteous. And friends, God is calling us to do the same. He's calling us to be people who are honest. He's calling us to be people who are kind. He's calling us to be people who are righteous. And these, these are not just words in a dictionary. These are words that flow out of the very heart of God. Let me just show, just from a, a few portions of Scripture, how that is true. First of all, Psalm 145, verse 17. And notice what it says. It should come up on the screen here in just a second. The Lord is righteous. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his ways. This is the character of God. He's righteous. He's true. He's just. And he is kind. This is how he functions. Can you imagine what it would be like to have an unjust judge as God? Can you imagine what it would be like to have a God who wasn't kind? See, we assume these character qualities of God because we're so used to the wonderful realities of these character qualities, but, but the alternative would be horrible, which then should magnify the beauty of these character qualities, these attributes of God. Secondly, whoever pursues righteousness and kindness will find life, righteousness, and honor. This bears fruit, doesn't it? Pursuing righteousness, pursuing kindness, bears fruit in life. I would have to think that that is talking about just the, the, the abundance of it, the, the joy of it, the, the fullness of it, right? What will, you know, they're in a sense paying forward for a life that they are going to have and, and the fruit of righteousness and the fruit of honor. And then I want to finish up here by, by going to Titus chapter 3 because this is this beautiful, beautiful uh, part of the story here and part of the, uh, the, the wonderful gospel picture that we have that, that the Apostle Paul reveals here. Remind them, he says to Titus, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This is, this is very similar, isn't it? Just different context. This is what you were. 
This is how you are to relate to other people. Verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not by, because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I'm just trying to show you, friends, that the kindness of God is behind his gospel. And when we humble ourselves before him and we receive by faith his gospel, we are the recipients of the full-born kindness of God that produces ongoing fruit in us. Friends, that's beautiful. It's wonderful. And God is saying, look, don't just be satisfied with what you receive from me. Oh, rejoice in it. Rest in it. Enjoy it. But let it also bear fruit in how you're interacting with others. Be honest. Be kind. Pursue what is right. For the glory of God, for the health of your family, for the health of your church, and for the health of the society and the nation that you live in. This is what God is calling you to. Lord, help us today. To pursue true justice. And Lord, we fail. We sin. And there are times when we sin in such ways that people look at us and what we do is not a reflection of what it means to walk with you. And Lord, we, we must be quick to repent, to admit our failure, to acknowledge our sin. But Lord, at the same time, to hold on to and to rest in what we know to be true about what you have done for us and how you want us to live. May the foundations that you have laid here in the book of Exodus continue to be realized as we seek to flesh out what it means to be your church as we live here in the East Bay of California, of San Francisco, of the Bay Area. And Lord, sometimes it seems daunting to go out into a world that is so oppressive and really against these ideals unless they're, they're ideals that somehow suit their end. Lord, may we not be caught up with the world's ideology, but Lord, may we, may we be just enthralled and overjoyed and overwhelmed by who you are to see that your truth and your justice and your will, Lord, is the the way and the means by which we are going to live our lives for your glory. Help us to be that person, those people, that church, living out our lives for your glory, reflecting the gospel, speaking the gospel, living out the gospel. We ask now in your precious holy name. Amen.